Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Today with me is wonderful guest speaker. is David Daniels. David, how are you? I'm, I'm good, Tom. How are you? Excellent. What time is it there in the United States? Well, at the time of our recording, it is 6 p.m. Excellent. It's 7 a.m. over here, so a little bit of difference. I think we're technically a day ahead of you, but yeah. Yes. You know, I I, I always find it interesting conversating with folks in your part of the world because I'm physically talking to the future. (laughs) And I right. love that. I love the idea. Literally, I'm talking to somebody in the future. I think it's cool. So where, whereas I'm, uh, I'm speaking to people in the past. Yes, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David, long name in safety circles, both here and internationally. Can you tell us where your journey in safety actually began? Well, the podcast isn't long enough to give you all of it, so I'll give you the snippets. My safety journey started in the fire rescue service about 40, almost 41 years ago. A couple of years out of high school, I stumbled into the Seattle Fire Department. I had no relatives in there. The only reason really I wanted to work there is because I, I thought they got paid decent and they didn't get laid off all that often. That's all I knew about it. It's a good reason. And it, but it was, a, it was a wonderful, you know, kind of lucky opportunity. As a matter of fact, the guy who convinced me to go take the test, we were both working construction so I'm going to go take the test, become a firefighter. I go, okay, I'll go with you. Well, interesting that I passed the test and he didn't. And the rest is kind of history. So I spent 20 years there, left as an assistant fire chief and took my first fire chief's job in the Atlanta area and spent 32 years active in fire rescue service. But I really figured out about halfway through my fire service career, I was really more interested in safety than I was in going to buildings on fire. I, I mean, I'll tell you. And I, I've said this before, there is nothing like the endorphin and adrenaline and testosterone dump that you get going into a building on fire. However, there's also the downside of the fact that 19 people that I work with either got killed doing that or died from the exposure to doing it. And that left a pretty indelible impact on me. And so when I talk about 
safety. I'm not talking about it academically, although my doctorate is in occupational health and safety. <laughs> I'm talking about it from what I know and what I've experienced and what I've seen other people experience. People should not die at work, period. There, period. No one, nobody can convince me that workers should die at work. And so I've taken that passion again throughout my fire service career. And I, I decided to strike out on my own about 11 years ago, but my, you know, my consulting practice was kind of a hobby <laughs> until the last couple of two or three years where I've recognized and I completed my work and my, my doctoral work around the mitigation of psychosocial hazards, because while some employers do a good job of not injuring you physically, they beat the living hell out of you emotionally. Yes. And so that's really what I'm about now. And that's also where a lot of folks in your part of the world may know me from is the host of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. I'm honored that the folks over in over at Flourish DX that's actually headquartered the, there has been, have sponsored this podcast in a country that does, we don't have a standard here. We don't have anything other than some people, those of us like me who are interested and are trying to push that agenda forward in the U.S. Yeah, what's the likelihood of that actually happening in in Anytime soon. Well, it depends on who you ask. If we were having this conversation in 1864, there wasn't a whole lot of people who thought that people like me wouldn't be property forever. So who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I mean, I mean who, who knows? I, I do believe, though, that there is momentum building in the U.S., predominantly because it's costing people money and and there are lots of International standards from the International Labor Organization, World Health Organization, our Secretary General has just said, hey, that's so slowly but surely, particularly those who want to do business on the international market, they're going to have to change whether they want to or not. Otherwise, folks will say, hey, you guys are, yeah, we can't do business with you. You mistreat too many people. So I, I think it will happen. And I think it will happen in my lifetime, to be honest. All right. A lot of evidence that uh, psychosocial injuries or psychological injuries actually uh the workers who suffer them take or take longer to recover yes. and it ends up costing companies more in litigation and claims than for physical injuries. So apart from the fact that uh, you may be required to in the future, it actually just makes good sense or good financial sense to actually take the steps to do it. Now, Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, but, but again, People do safety-related things for one of three reasons. Option A, they do it because they have this ethical, moral, just belief, this is a thing we got to do. It's the right thing to do. I don't care what it costs. Mm -hmm. Option B is, well, you know, it costs a lot of money. We're losing. I, you know, I'm not sure I necessarily care about the people individually, but it's costing me a lot, so I change. And then the last reason to do it is because you're being forced to by government or by, by some kind of regulation. But what I say is, I don't really care why you do it, as long as you do it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You said you did your PhD in managing psychological, psychosocial hazards. No. So my my PhD is in occupational health and safety. Yeah. My dissertation uh, was around psychosocial hazard mitigation. Yes. All right. Speak to me. Because okay. it, it seems it seems to be one of the most misunderstood things here. We've now got regulations in place from most jurisdictions across Australia, where it says employers must manage psychosocial or psychological risks in the workplace the same way they manage physical risks 
given the same importance. But I'm yet to see too much intelligent thought about how they're going to manage. I, I have some thoughts. Oops. I have some thoughts. <laughs> I have some thoughts. And part of the challenge is how you approach this issue. So I approach this issue as an occupational health and safety guy. That's what I do. That's what I've done for years. I've got the credentials, the background, that kind of thing. The vast majority of people that I hear talking about this approach it as either leadership, supervisor, manager, administrator type people from the money part. And then those who are psychologists, sociologists, psychiatrists, whatever, that are looking at it from the human part. And that's important. It is a hazard just like all the other hazards. And the challenge is many of those other groups, they don't understand the other five hazards anyway. And I also, again, personally, because I was in the fire rescue service for so long, I recognized that you manage psychosocial hazards like you would natural disasters. So in, in emergency management, there are these five phases. There's prevention, mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery. The same thing applies to every hazard. doesn't matter how big or small it is or what the source is. They're all the same. There are some things you can do to prevent them. There's some things you can do to mitigate them just in case you can't prevent it. There's other things you can do to prepare because you can't mitigate and you can't prevent. But once they happen, you got to be able to respond. You got to be able to recover. It's the same mindset, the same mentality. It is not different. It is simply another hazard. But because folks often don't have a real grasp, because people think that occupational safety and health is about construction companies and mining and all these really hazardous things. It's about every industry. And what psychosocial hazards do is they get people to recognize that you may not have fires and chemicals and all these other things going on in your organization, but you do have psychosocial hazards because you have human beings. So that's really, I think, part of the challenge is getting people not to focus on that. Psychosocial is a big, long word. It is a hazard. What do you do with hazards in your workplace? And I find that most of these folks who want to talk about psychological safety and all that, they don't know what to do with the hazards they already have, so they're not going to do a good job with this either. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you entirely on that. I mean, for me, the real danger with this, and I, I spoke to someone else about this recently, is that what we're going to see is a plethora from business, a plethora of policies and procedures workers have to sign. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. We'll throw in some resilience training or, or, or some pretty crappy training, basically. You, know, you, you can do this. But that's it. And the interesting thing about that is I, I then go and look at the way they're managing hazards in general. And it's <laughs> right. pretty much exactly the same thing. It's pretty much exactly the same thing. So I go, well, of course they're going to do that because that's their track record on everything so far. Let, let me give you an example. Do you know, I, I don't know how much money, and, and, and you know, some of my fire rescue friends are probably going to hate me for saying this one, but <laughs> do you know how much money we spend on fire extinguishers? Hundreds of, probably billions of dollars if you went around the world. For something that, so we'll spend a lot of money on a fire extinguisher, but virtually no money on simply preventing the fire in the first place. <laughs> but we'll teach people how to use it, but we'll store trash, we'll leave doors open, we'll do all this other stuff, as opposed to preventing it. So we put all this money on the back end and we throw a fire, or put a fire alarm system in, and the system installers love that type of thing. 
but it's about taking this system approach and, you know, starting with prevention. It's a lot cheaper to prevent it in the first place, but you're right. We throw these, you know, (laughs) and I hear the folks that, you know, at first talk fruit bowls and yogurt, you know, at stuff and think that's going to make it okay. It's not. And and, and here's the issue, Tom, that I want, I want to be real clear about. The issue is not the people. The issue is the environment we put people in. We don't spend enough time making sure that the environment itself, it's going to have psychosocial hazards. You can't prevent them all, but how do we address them when they manifest? And how do we address them when they affect Tom in a different way than they affect David? Because we're going to see the exposed to the same hazard. We're yeah. going to respond differently because we're different people. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, it was interesting. I heard, I heard a gentleman, Sean Brady, recently, he was talking about the Brady Hayward report, which is an investigation into coal mine deaths in Queensland. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, well, you might say surprisingly, that over 60% of the responses for change of control measures after a death in a coal mine were, what do you think? People. Oh, even worse, we just put a new policy and procedure in place. <laughs> but the, again, that's that's another attempt to control people. That's that's the consequence. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll change the rules so the people will act differently. Yeah. No. Well, give that's them a piece of problem. paper. A new piece of paper <laughs> will protect you. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Oh, okay. yeah. All right. You're one time the executive director of Workforce Safety in Atlanta. Beat the US once, 2016. Didn't make it to Atlanta. When I picture Atlanta, I go, you know, it's R&B, it's, it's music. But then when we think of the natural disasters, the cyclones and the subsequent flooding, what some of the issues you actually faced looking after health and safety in Atlanta? So, so a little bit of a story about Atlanta. So first of all, where Atlanta sits, we don't have a lot of disasters here. As a matter of fact, a tornado has only touched down in the city of Atlanta once in history. We, we, on average for the last 75 years, we have about two inches. Of, there are not a lot of natural disasters here. We're not really near, a, you know, we have one river that goes through town, not a body of water, so we don't have to worry. But what we have is the world's busiest airport. Yep. We have an extremely diverse, you know, community and, and and we have a lot of the social challenges with income inequality and all those kinds of things like most places in the U.S. have. So when I went to the city of Atlanta, uh, it was kind of I went there kind of on a lark. I, I was actually teaching college at the time. A friend of mine who was a fire chief says, hey, they're looking for a safety director. And they'd never really had one before. And they're trying to combine these safety programs from around the city. So I go and I talk to him. It says, hey, we want to hire you. I go, okay, good. So they put me in the mayor's office and I'm responsible for the safety of 8,000 employees across 22 departments. And the thing that they were most interested in is the $12 million a year that they'd spent in the previous four fiscal years on workers' comp claims, new ones, and they didn't know why. Yeah. That's why, that, so it was purely a financial decision. It was not some dedication to the workers. It wasn't that. I got to be honest, because many of the supervisors didn't know how to do that because nobody had ever trained them how. And so it took it took a couple of years, you know, but in the couple of years that I was there, the last time I tracked it, I, I looked at how much they were spending on workers comp before I started. 
And we, we cut that by about 40% in the first year. Just like that. You know what we did? Really simple thing. Let's have a safety orientation for new employees. Just that simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what, what a, how interesting that is. They, I mean, they were doing things at the time. They had, and one I remember so, is so vivid to me, they hired a guy on a Thursday, put him on a dump truck on Friday. He got hurt the middle of the following week and never worked for the city again. And they were paying for his injuries about it. This happened about a year before I got there. Well, duh, unless people are trained on how to be safe, human beings are risk takers naturally anyway. And particularly in the communities that I was raised in, when you are raised in communities that are trying to figure out the basics most of the time, I'm used to things being rough and tough. And it doesn't even occur to me that that's going to hurt me because I've been hurt before. I might all kinds of things. So it was teaching people, these are the things that can get you hurt. Most people do not go to work and say, hey, how can I get killed today? So that training, just having a basic orientation on the front has changed the entire scope. They haven't spent as much since. All right. You're our chief deputy chief in deputy fire, deputy fire chief in Richmond. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What are some of the issues that you face there? What are some of the safety issues you actually had to manage? Well, that so I, I went to Richmond. So I was working in Atlanta at the time and the mayor was up for re-election. I don't I I didn't really know the mayor. I was <laughs> I you know, I, I didn't. I mean, and Atlanta's one of those cities where when the mayor leaves, everybody in the cabinet tends to leave with them. It's kind of like the federal government. So I was just kind of going like, well, I don't know this guy. If he's, he was term limited, as a matter of fact. So I better start trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. I wanted to keep working just kind of for fun. So I ended up going up to Richmond to work with a fire chief who was, he was going to retire in a couple of years anyway, and need somebody to help him out. And I says, okay, it really wasn't to do the firefighter stuff though. I fell in love with the firefighters in Richmond. I really did. Cause they were just, they were just really a special group of people. Now they always, I, I, a lot of them are still friends. We still communicate now. They, they hold a special place in my heart, but those folks go to lots and lots of fires. They go to lots of them. I mean, it wasn't a week. We didn't have five or six every week, every single week. And so the issues were, and they had a pretty decent safety culture, but what they lacked was, some of the detail, and then particularly some of the emotional pieces, because many of those folks felt like they didn't feel like people cared about them. And my job as the chief safety officer was to help people figure out that I cared about them. That's kind of really where I started thinking about safety as more of an emotional thing. So safety is an adjective. And and a lot of people spend a lot of time, safety as a verb, I should say, a verb or noun, and, and they spend a lot of time with safety, the things that you do, the programming, and not enough time on the, uh, the term safe, which is an adjective that describes how people feel about these things. You can have great programming, and I still don't feel safe. And that was my goal, is to help people feel safe and feel that if this didn't go exactly right, I wasn't going to cut their head off and toss them in the trash. Yeah. You know, and so, again, we saw a significant decrease in workers' comp claims there as well, you know, and it wasn't just me, but just that focus on safety is not just about how you are physically, it's about how you are emotionally. Are we supportive of you? Do we encourage you? Do we give you opportunities to be better? Do we give you training? All those kinds of things. And that left the, you know, that that's that's the kind of impression at least I tried to leave. And then, and again, there's, you know, there's a change of mayor and they decide they want to have somebody else and so I move on, so... 
just seen in the media not that not that long ago reports basically saying that firefighters in general basically dying of, of cancers rare cancers at a rate of three times more than everyone else in the community that's concerning for me but for someone who's been a firefighter and someone who's looked after firefighters how concerning is that for you yeah, I so one of the things that I did, I started actually when I was in Fulton County, Georgia. I I was the chair of the safety committee for the International Association of Fire Chiefs, and we eventually converted that committee of 12 people into a section of 1,200 people because the fire chiefs in the United States finally started figuring out that it was their responsibility to take care of the folks that they hire and are responsible for. So it was chair of the safety section and was on the board of directors of the international chiefs. And that was right about the time we started having more conversation, as I recall, about the impact that carcinogen exposure has on firefighters. So again, I mentioned, I may have mentioned that these 19 people that I saw either get killed or die at work, many, you know, a good percentage of them, probably about a third to half, maybe a 40% or so died of cancer. And my, I, I saw my first a firefighter die of cancer when I was on a job for like three years. And one of my colleagues died of cancer. And I go like, this is a thing. And, and what we found and what the studies have now proven is a lot of it is, again, the carcinogen exposure that occurs not only at fires, but yeah. after the fires are out. It's even worse. And, you know, just things like the fact that, you know, you'll have firefighters who will get their protective gear, you know, full of carcinogens. Then now ride it in the truck and breathe it all the way back to the fire station and then hang their gear in the fire station. So a lot of those things have changed recently. And there is more focus now on making sure that you have clean rooms and fire stations and people are decontaminating. And But it's taken years because, you know, firefighters want to do it like they always did it. They, you know, having a dirty piece of gear was a badge of honor, but some have realized. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I don't want to die for that badge of honor. And again, cancer is still a big issue in the fire rescue service. Yeah, it can't go on like that. It just can't because, you know. These are people who basically put their lives at risk daily. We don't know when they won't basically, you know, well, well, let me help you. their lives. Yeah, let me help you. It actually can go on unless people do something about it. 
I mean, because really, it's not going to stop itself. And a lot of it goes to the human, the individual deciding that I don't want to die of cancer. And if, you know, there, if I, as I recall, there's somewhere between eight and 10 causes of cancer. And there's like, you know, three or four of them, you can't stop the age and, you know, heredity and all that kind of stuff. But there are probably, there are a number that you can do something about. The, The issue is, again, that's a hazard. What do you do to mitigate that hazard? Because if you're going to be a firefighter, you're going to go to things on fire sometimes. I mean, every now and then. So it's a part of the job. How do you mitigate the risk? How do you mitigate that hazard and then the associated risk with the hazard? And folks are starting to figure that out. And as I'm finding out that particularly younger generations, the millennials and Gen Zers, they're smarter than some of us old birds. (laughs) (laughs) they they thought of they go like oh you know my my uncle had that and that didn't look good so I'm not, I don't want to do that so they're 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 coming into the service with more information and more informed about this and so they're less likely to do it yeah excellent all right you're now the president and CEO of ID two solutions what does ID two actually do so ID two solutions is the consulting practice that I started eleven years ago when I left the fire service and originally it was a hobby. It was something to do, you know, (laughs) it was, it gave me an opportunity to go, you know, predominantly, you know, speak and teach. And, you know, I did a little bit of consulting here and there. And then the last couple of years, you know, particularly as I was finishing the dissertation up, I just got more, you know, kind of focused on this psychosocial hazard mitigation thing. And so over the last, you know, year or so, I, I, what I do uniquely is, and my company is one person, I don't have thousands of employees and it's me. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 I am very unique because I again in the United States I have not found a single other African American male with a PhD in safety in the entire country. I I think there may be one I haven't met him yet but there's we're very small number. So to get a safety professional who happens to be a person of color who happens to have worked in you know, the fire rescue service for 30 years in every kind of organization you can particularly work in, big ones and small ones, and to be able to make that connection. So I'm, I have a very different kind of perspective, you know, and again, my graduate degree is in human resources. So I take this kind of human approach and I'm able to spend most of, if I were to go to just most businesses, most organizations, I can tell you who's going to get injured the most. It's the people you pay the less. The the less you pay them, the more likely they are to be the ones that get hurt. And I'm one of those people. I'm, you know, and that's where I came from. I, you know, I, I share this proudly. My mom was 14 years old when I was born. Uh, we were on public assistance when I graduated high school. So those people that folks talk about that, oh, you know, they just got hurt because they didn't understand. Yeah, I'm one of those people. And I and I try to be a voice for those people. And because I have my own business, I don't really need the money. Although I'll take it, I, I I I will tell you the truth about what I see and what you do with it is up to you because it is your problem to solve. It is not mine because I'm not going to allow you to treat me like you treat some of your workers. So that kind of, you know, honest, you know, some people like it. Not everybody does. You know, I don't get to work with everybody and I don't want to work with everybody. But if folks are serious about identifying, assessing and mitigating psychosocial hazards, Yep. They're not going to find a whole lot of people who can do it better. Excellent. All right. We've been kind of insulated in Australia from 
some of the major effects of the last three years of COVID. We've we've had our fair share. But some some states better fared a bit better than others. What's been the uh, what's the biggest impact in the US in terms of workplace safety with COVID? My assessment is that what the COVID-19 pandemic did is simply make people more of what they already were. (laughs) I don't think it changed much of anything, but it exposed most of everything. It exposed a lot of the inadequacies in our healthcare system. It exposed the fact that some businesses were on the margins anyway. Those are the ones that failed. They, They were on the margins anyway. It exposed the, the the fact that we have hundred well we had millions of people whose health was on the margins to begin with those are the folks who were taken out by the pandemic it exposed the fact that we have this streak of you know people want to be independent and don't necessarily want to do what they're told it ex- it just exposed what was already here so frankly for I I, I consider I and my my wife just the two of us at home the kids are all out living on their own. But it simply made us more of what we already had. We were already pretty prepared. We, you know, and and strangely enough, we got all the, went out and when they said to go get a, you know, vaccination, we got it. And frankly, I didn't get, I I actually caught it myself and it was last August. I mean, as a pandemic, and I I was wearing a mask. I was, I was vaccinated three times. I I don't know where I got, to be quite honest, because everybody else was dropping their mask. I was actually wearing one. You know, and, and come to find out that, you know, it appears that most people will get it at some point. My gig is, hey, when it, people first started getting it, they were dying within a week. And I, and I'm thankful that, I, you know, I was able to, you know, make it. It was kind of a nuisance, but I had three vaccinations on board and I'm very healthy and all that type of thing. So, again, COVID simply exposed us for what we already were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always think of it as being a great amplifier. It just... Makes us more good. Um, all right. One question I, I, I didn't keep a break on. What's the dumbest policy procedure you've seen regards to safety? There are actually a lot of them. That's a surprise. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there are actually, actually a lot of them because, again, unfortunately, I found a lot of safety professionals who think they're cops. They think that's their job is to simply catch people doing bad things and then make the person responsible. And I find that that is, so I don't think, matter of fact, I'm pretty convinced. A safety professional has no business being involved in the corrective action of employees when the rules are broken. That's not their job. That's not their job. But what happens is you get, and I'm going to be pretty graphic here, these spineless leaders and supervisors and, you know, and weak-minded managers who don't have the courage to take care of people up front. And then when it goes sideways, they go, hey, safety guy, what should I do to this person who just wrecked a truck? What do I do to this person who slipped and fell? What do I do? And How do I get them out of here? So I think that's really, it's, it, it may not be the policies, but more the practices of organizations who, instead of placing blame on the systems themselves. So W. Edwards Deming, the father of the total quality management said, System, total management, total quality management system. He said that if you look at a system and it's not producing what you want it to produce, 95% of the problem is the system. It is not, and only 5% is the people. And so why is it? Why? So that's my issue is that 
people have all these safety policies and rules, and, and sometimes we have too many of them. Bunch of rules and regulations. And why? Because somebody got hurt five years ago or 10 years ago or whatever. And we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. And as soon as something goes wrong, we write another policy. We don't really change anything. We don't give people more training. We don't give people more protective equipment. We don't give them any more supports. We don't do anything other than write a new rule that doesn't work predictably. And then we blame the human being. So that's that's probably my, that's dumb to me. Just dumb. Yeah, good, good. All right, getting close to the end. Your opinion, biggest safety challenge the U.S. is facing currently? The biggest challenge we face currently is the lack of understanding about safety in general. Safety tends to be connected in the United States with law enforcement. You say safety, public safety. It's all generally people's brains generally go to. So police and you know law enforcement. People don't have a basic understanding about safety. Law enforcement is not a safety thing; it's a security thing, and they are different. They, but they so basically they co-op the word safety and spend a bunch of money on safety when it's not safety at all. There are again, there are five hazards that folks are exposed to in life and in the workplace, biological, chemical, ergonomic, safety, physical, and psychosocial. Law enforcement is not a safety thing. It is a security thing. And if we could get people to just understand the difference and get people, and most people don't get basic safety awareness anywhere. You don't get it in school. You don't get it at work. You're supposed to get it at work. I mean, employers are supposed to give you a basic (laughs) safety orientation when you get hired, but many of them don't. And the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in the United States is too small, too underfunded, and frankly has to deal with too many big lobbyists. They're not going to be able to change that. It has to be individuals going, look, and and organizations going, look, we want to make sure that people understand what their rights and responsibilities are first, people-centered. So if people knew what safety was, what it really was, and not the fairy tales they've heard about it, it would be a safer community, be a safer world. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to touch on gun laws because that's controversial if I raise it at all. I I do controversy, so go ahead. (laughs) All right, all right. right. I'll do it. I'm I'm sorry if I offend any of the people in the US who do listen to the pod. In Australia, we're a very small country, admittedly. Sure, very, very diverse you're, country. You're small. You're small by population because That's I just right. found out that the country is actually the same size as the U.S. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we don't get schoolyard massacres. We don't mm-hmm. get people going into cinemas and shooting multiple people dead. We don't. We don't. We don't get any of those things that tend to make the headlines, not just in the U.S. but literally all around the world. And uh, partly that's because. We don't allow things like semi-automatic weapons or automatic weapons and stuff like that being owned by regular homeowners without a very good excuse. Are we ever likely to see better system in the US that's going to stop those killings? Well, so first of all, let me tell you that it, in my opinion, this is not about whether people have weapons or not. It's not. That's not the problem because there are many countries who per capita have more guns than we do. So that's not the issue. 
it goes back to this whole conversation about what safety is. So people with weapons are simply another hazard. They're a hazard. So how do we prevent some, mitigate some, prepare for others, respond and recover from those that we can't prevent? That's the issue. You are never, I, I mean, okay, let's, let's, let's go try to round up all the guns that are out there and see how that works. I, I'm just not sure. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one. That's not the point. I don't personally care whether people have a gun or not. I care whether or not that gun affects other people. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. You can have as many as you want. You can have 500 of them. I don't care. But as long as it doesn't affect anybody else, I don't care how many you have. And if I have a business, an organization or whatever, knowing that that's the case, matter of fact, many of these particularly and and virtually every one of these mass shootings is a shooting in a workplace. And the only thing that the employees get talked about is, well, here's the active shooter drill. That's the problem. That's on the back end. What about on the front end? There are things that could be done on the front end to recognize when a person is getting agitated, to to not treat people with disrespect, to not bully people, (laughs) to eliminate some of those psychosocial hazards that drive the person to bring the gun back to work and drive the person. If you weren't mad with this company, didn't have an ought against them, you probably wouldn't bring the gun in the first place. There are some of those that could be cut down. And then there are others. Of course, there are things that could be done with physical barriers and cameras and all kinds of, there are things that can be done, but it's got to be more on the prevention side. And the goal is to keep the workers and the customers safe in that order. First, keep the the workers safe, then keep the customers safe. That's it. And then based on whatever that organization is, you have to figure out how that works. Guess what? You got to do that at a gun store. How are you going to keep the workers safe with guns all around? There's a way to do it. Again, I'm not sure what it is, but we can figure our way through these. And I'm, like I said, I'm not one of those who believes that simply regulating guns is going to make a difference. So it is about hazard identification, hazard assessment, hazard mitigation. Same thing I was talking about before. Good, good, good. All right. Lastly, again, something I shouldn't ask, but I'm curious. I was in, in, in the lovely US for a couple of weeks in 2016, and wherever I went, I'd say, Who's going to win the election? Who's going to win the election? And everyone I spoke to said, Donald Trump will never win the election, etc. And so, lo and behold, he became elected. I was like, obviously, I spoke to the wrong people. All right. It's a little way out yet. Who's going to win? Who's going to be the next president in the US? I don't have a clue. Good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 literally, I literally don't have a clue. And, and I... You know, I don't. I don't have any idea because we are in this really interesting. So the former president has has said he's going to run again. Yeah. Guess what? He could he could win again. <laughs> he could. I mean, yeah. I, 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 he could. President Biden could win again. That's going to run. I really have no idea. And because because so many things in the next you know couple of years, we have short memories here. Mm. I mean, really, it's it's. It's that's kind of unfortunate because a lot of people make their decisions based on what happened in the last few five, five or six months. I, I um, I, now I, I will tell, you know, I don't generally mention, but I did vote for Barack Obama twice and he won that first election. Had we not had 
an economic downturn, it would have been more challenging for him to win, even though he was a great president to me. And not everybody agrees with that. So a lot of people make their decisions in really short periods of time, because most of the time they don't care. I can tell you right now, the president of the United States does virtually nothing that affects me on most days. Nothing. The the person who affects me more is me. (laughs) But then in terms my city council member does. As a matter of fact, my city council member is a friend of mine. I helped him get elected. So, (laughs) and my state senator, I also know her too. And my state representative, I know her. So I, I, what I try to do is I try to focus on the people that are closest to me. And I, I voted for all of them. (laughs) So I got a bunch of winners. Once it gets out past like governor and senator, I voted for, they don't really do that much for me to be quite honest. I don't know. And part of me says, as long as it doesn't affect me too much at my local level, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. David Daniels, quite leave it there. It's been a great honor and pleasure speaking to you, sir. And hopefully I'll get a chance to speak to you again soon. It's yeah, Tom, it's been my pleasure. It's a, it's nice to, it's, I think it's maybe one of the few times I've actually done a a podcast with my friends down under there, mate. (laughs) So, but, but, but I, I appreciate it. You know, I, I, I hope to get over there someday. I've never been to Australia and I hope to get there someday. You know, I I know I have a lot of followers on the podcast there and, you know, in Australia. So again, I, I I thanks for the opportunity to, to come on and, and to chat with you. Excellent. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.